Need a little sip of water. <laughs> Good morning, church family. Happy Mother's Day to you all. Um, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 6 to 11 as knee read. I'll give you a moment to turn there as we pray. Father, thank you again for your word. We ask and pray that this morning, by your spirit, we would afresh behold the crucified, risen, ascended Jesus, and that we would bear witness to this, his world, that there is a king, and Jesus is his name. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, Nee mentioned that our reading this morning in Acts chapter 1 was all about the ascension of Jesus. And perhaps you're a Christian man or woman here today and you have maybe not given too much thought to the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Either you are a new Christian and so it's just never really dawned on you, right? You're just becoming familiar with the account of Jesus and his life. Or maybe you come from a Christian tradition or denomination that didn't follow the Christian calendar and so you just kind of never even thought about the fact that the ascension happened. You just don't pay much attention to it. In fact, the ascension in many churches is something that's often overlooked. But it is a central tenet of our Christian faith. Sometimes we pay a lot of attention to the incarnation, right? The virgin birth of Jesus at Christmas. Or we focus in on Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And the ascension can take a back seat. It's only been for me personally in the last few years that the ascension has become a central feature. And I want to encourage you with this this morning as we look at this. Jesus ascending into heaven is key. If you are going to understand, embrace, and live out of the fullness of what Jesus has accomplished for you. So what happened? Well, you heard me read it, right? But look at it in front of you, verses 6 to 11. This is 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, 40 days after that first Easter Sunday. And we're told, verse 6, that when they had come together, they asked the Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, uh, you guys are not going to get to know the time of the seasons, um, Verse 8, but you'll receive power. You're going to go and be my witnesses from Jerusalem, spreading out all over the world. Verse 9. And then when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So leading up to our series through Acts, we were tracking through the resurrection appearances of Jesus over the course of these 40 days. Now, Jesus and the disciples are all hanging out in this moment, and Jesus instructs them. He says, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit so you can go into all the world and be my witnesses. And then immediately after saying that, 
the wildest thing happens. Can you imagine if you were there that day? And your friend, first of all, your best friend for the last two or three years, he's been hanging out with you all the time, you've been sharing meals, you've been taught by him and seen him do miracles. The first thing that happens is your friend is nailed to a Roman cross and died. You watch it happen. Then three days later, he appears to you alive in a body and he shows you the scars and he, and he eats fish and he, and he teaches you. And you're like, you're, you must just be reeling. And then 40 days after getting used to the fact that your friend that you saw crucified is now alive, you're just sort of getting cool with that. And then, whoop, up he goes into heaven. And I, I can only imagine, I'd be like, what on earth is going on here? And so the disciples did exactly what each and every one of us would do. They stood slack-jawed, staring up at the sky. Verse 11. These heavenly men in white robes come alongside to the disciples and say, don't just stand staring idly up in the clouds. You are going to be witnesses that change the entire world by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look, this isn't the point of the sermon. I just want to mention this before we get into it. Christian, man or woman, um, there is a sense in which Christians can, can become so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. There are a lot of Christians who are not heavenly-minded enough and therefore don't bring heaven to bear on earth. But the point is, Christian, man or woman, Jesus has ascended into heaven, and that does not mean that we sit idly by until he returns. But we go and we be his witnesses. Verse 11. And then the rest of verse 11, these men assure the disciples that Jesus is not only ascended into heaven, go and be his witnesses, but that he's going to return. He's going to come back. The imminent return of Jesus is something that shapes every one of our Christian lives. It shapes our worldview. It shapes how we see everything. Well, let's jump into our passage this morning. If that's what happened, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at why it is central that Jesus ascended into heaven. What did Jesus accomplish in his ascension? How does it change your life? I want to pull out three great hopes that are anchored in the ascension of Jesus. Three truths of what Christ accomplished in this moment. The first one is that in Jesus' ascension, we see that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, rules and reigns. Look, if you are alive today, you've perhaps experienced an increase in worry, anxiety, fear. Seems to be the order of the day, doesn't it? I think partly it's just the natural human state and condition to feel powerless and worried. I also think that we are subject to an onslaught of fear-mongering. And so maybe you're worried. You feel like your life is subject to the fates. 
subject to a virus, subject to a government, subject to fill in the blanks. You're frightful. Maybe you are afraid because you feel like your life is subject to the malevolence and wickedness of another person. And in some ways, there seems like there's no end of that. People are just nasty and mean and try to take advantage of others. But then we remember Jesus ascended into heaven, ascended to the throne at the right hand of the Father. You see, this is the first thing that Jesus accomplished in his ascension. He rules and reigns over everything. That's why the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 8, says that the Father, God the Father, says of the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Christian man or woman, don't pass too quickly off this point. Jesus rose from the grave. He is alive. And in his risen state, he did not just choose to perpetually walk the face of the earth until the end. He ascended into heaven. And from his heavenly throne, he rules and reigns over everything. All right, let that truth sink in for a moment. It means that in our cosmos, there is not one rogue or random molecule. He rules and reigns from his heavenly throne over everything. And there's comfort to be found in that, is there not? Especially when times are tough, especially when hard ship falls upon you. Listen, in those moments of difficulty, in those moments of suffering, we sometimes ask the big question, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening now? See, we are living out of a narrative where we are maybe even subconsciously believing that things happen for random chance or things happen because someone else is mean or wicked to me ultimately. So we ask, why is this happening? Because we think that if we understood the question of why, that then we would gain some comfort. The fact of the matter is, when you're truly suffering, when you're truly facing hardship, no answer to that question will deeply satisfy you don't actually need to know why hardship has befallen you. What you need to know is that your suffering serves a purpose. What you need to know is that your suffering will, in the end, be redeemed. And here is where the ascension of Jesus Christ has something particular to say to the Christian life. Jesus is ascended into heaven, and he is ruling and reigning over everything large and small, everything joyful, everything sad, every gain, every loss. He has a purpose and a plan for it, and for you in it. 
and he will redeem it for good. Jesus is alive. He's ascended. He rules and he reigns. And this is a truth of the resurrection that is becoming increasingly and will be increasingly important for Christian men and women these days. Brace yourselves, okay? I'm about to say something that you might think I'm kooky. We're living in the last days. Okay? We're living in the last days. Things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. Now, that might sound like a kooky thing for me to say, right? You might think, oh, gosh, R.D., he's finally gone over the edge. But this is actually a mainstream Christian proclamation for the last 2,000 years. We're living in the last days. And in one sense, we've been living in the last days ever since Jesus ascended into heaven. And yet in another sense, with the passing of every moment of every day, we get closer to that last day when Jesus Christ will return. And so we're living in the last days. Now what that means is, as we approach the last days, Jesus promised that the days would get darker and worse. In Matthew 24, he said, that there would be wars and rumors of wars, that nations and kingdoms would rise against one another. There would be pestilence and famine and earthquake. Does any of this sound like the days that we're living in? Now, in one sense, when Jesus said that in Matthew 24, some of that was fulfilled around the destruction of the temple, but some of that was looking ahead to that final day of Christ's return and what would lead up to it. So look, you're a Christian man or woman, you're living in the West, you're living in Burlington in 2023, you see the gathering storms, the gathering clouds of the storms all around you, it looks as though we are approaching the end of time, the return of Christ. What do you do? You look on the horizon and you're concerned. Well, the answer for Christian men and women is to push against your natural instincts to try to solve the problem of your worry on your own. Reject any political solutions or powers. Reject anyone who's trying to peddle or sell a book to you on how to survive the last days. You have a book. It's called the Bible. And instead, remember that Jesus Christ is ascended. He rules and reigns over everything, even and especially in the darkest days. That's how Christians endure in the end of the age. Come back to this truth. No matter how dark things get before Jesus returns, he has ascended, he is ruling, he is reigning. Now go and be his witnesses. Live your life in the last days declaring, there is a king, his name is Jesus.
He's sovereign. Revelation chapter 11 declares, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. See, the ascension means that prime ministers and presidents will come and go, but the Lord Jesus Christ will reign forever. Okay, so the ascension means that Jesus rules and reigns over everything from heaven. That's the first thing. But then you might be thinking and think, gosh, that may be true, but how can I trust him? If power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, then if there is an absolute king over everything, how can I possibly trust? Anytime that I see anyone in, with small measures of power, they often go off the rails. So how can I trust this Jesus who is ruling and reigning and ascended and ruling over everything? Well, the good news that Christian men and women know is that this king who is ascended and rules and reigns is your friend, your brother, and your savior. You can trust him because of his demonstrated character and track record. What's he like? Well, he's a good king. He's a king who doesn't kill rebels but dies for them and now rules and reigns. I've mentioned John G. Patton, uh, the Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, several times. Again, I recommend to you his biography, uh, autobiography. He tells the story of taking his coffin and his ship to this island of cannibals and his young wife, you know, and I won't, I won't ruin the whole story, uh, but tragedy befalls him. His ministry isn't met with much fruitfulness. Um, he doesn't see anyone converted to Christ for a long, 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 long time. And in the face of horrendous personal tragedy, he wrote that his comfort was in the fact that the hand pierced at Calvary now sways the scepter of the universe. Look, John G. Patton knew something that we need to embrace. Jesus is alive. He has ascended into heaven. He rules and reigns over everything. And the hand on the scepter is pierced with the nail marks that show that he loves me. He's good. He's trustworthy. He's a good king. Friend, you got to feel that and know that this morning. Whatever's worrying you, whatever's plaguing your thoughts, press into this truth from the ascension. Jesus rules and reigns. The second truth that I want to pull out of the ascension and look at this morning essential for our Christian lives. The resurrected, the crucified, resurrected Jesus ascends into heaven. He's ruling and reigning, king, master, sovereign over everything. But scripture also teaches us that he is in heaven as our advocate. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you. That's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25. 
He ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is actively in an ongoing eternal prayer meeting where he is praying for you in heaven. Can you imagine that? How comforting is it to have people praying for you? Charles Spurgeon said, no man can do me a truer kindness than to pray for me. Maybe you've experienced that. Do you have people in your life who pray for you? I know every time I talk to my mom and my dad, they always tell me, Ray David, we're praying for you. And it's not patronizing. It makes me stand a little taller. Do you have people who pray for you? Do you have people that God has called you to pray for? Listen, especially when you get into the third period of life, if you know what I mean. You get into your senior years, and maybe you don't have quite the vim and the vigor to serve the Lord being his witnesses, and you think, what does God have for me at this time in my life? Well, maybe God is calling you to a ministry of prayer. Get out a book, write down names, start praying for people, and pray for them relentlessly like the relentless widow with the unjust judge. Pray. So comforting to know that people are praying for you. It's so empowering to pray for others. I am heading into a busy month, so if you're looking for me over the next couple of weeks, uh, you won't find me on the golf course. <laughs> a week or so ago, I was speaking at a conference. Uh, this week, I'm in Philadelphia speaking again at another conference, gone until Saturday. The end of the month, I'm in Calgary speaking at another conference and back home on the Saturday. Um, and it's just feeling like a lot. Would you pray for me? It means so much to me to know that you're praying for me over this next couple of weeks. It means a lot to me when I'm heading out the door and my wife will just into the passing comments say, I'll be praying for you today, honey. What a rich treasure to know that people are praying for you. How much more so then to know that Jesus Christ is ascended into heaven and sitting on the right hand of the Father, interceding for me, interceding for you. The great high priest prays for me in heaven. And this is the second great comfort that we see in the ascension. Friend, if you are feeling alone today, if you're feeling scared, if you're feeling vulnerable, if you're here and you feel like no one on earth knows or cares enough to pray for you, well, in some cases, that sadly may be true. But the ascension of Jesus, captured in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, means that even if you are indeed all alone, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. And that's enough. Before we move on to our third point, I want to just pull one other thing out of this point of Jesus interceding for us. The risen 
alive, ascended Jesus, his intercession in heaven goes even beyond praying for you in one sense. Let me tell you what I mean. He's interceding to secure your salvation and your assurance. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I just want to read to you a couple of verses. It'll be a lot easier if you have it open in front of you. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 37. Jesus' intercession for you is not only the kind of things that we pray for one another, but he is interceding that you would be saved and persevere to the end, come whatever tribulation and trial. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Paul's writing about this and he says to Christians, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or coming famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That him, in verse 34, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Look, the promise here in Jesus' ascension is that as long as Jesus is alive, as long as Jesus has ascended into heaven, nothing can snatch you away from God. No one can ever pull you out of his hand. No one's strong enough. No trial. No tribulation. No end times disaster. No satanic assault. Because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. What can separate you from the love of God? You have an advocate in the heavenly court. And he is interceding for every Christian man or woman. He's your friend. He's your brother. He's your savior. It's always comforting, isn't it, to have someone on the inside. Like, do you just, when, let's say something breaks down in your car, do you just like Google local mechanics and drop in on anyone? I don't. I go to my buddy, Steve. Because <laughs> I know him and I trust him. He's my best friend. And so if there is comfort to be found with a friend, when it's something as trivial and mundane as a car, how much more so when it comes to your eternal soul? 
Jesus is alive and he has ascended into heaven. Your friend, your brother, sitting by the Father, presenting your case. You can trust him. All right, first one, Jesus rules and reigns. Second one, he intercedes. The third and final thing I want you to see in the ascension is that Jesus is the judge. Now here's where it gets dark, but comforting. Sometimes we feel like the evil in our world goes unnoticed. But in fact, what Scripture tells us is that Jesus, the judge, misses nothing. That all of the evil doers in history are storing up the active wrath of God. That all of this accumulated wrath for all of the sin, for all of humanity, has been piled up, it's been accumulated, it's being stored up, because on the last day, Jesus Christ will judge the earth. And in one sense, I think that's actually comforting for me to remind myself of that. Sometimes I despair because it looks like evil and wickedness gets ahead in the world. But we're reminded that Jesus will judge it. It's not going to win in the end. Our world tells us that often the wicked just kind of skate by. But the ascension reminds us that there is a just judge who misses nothing. It's become a popular um, error, I think, in churches these days to look at Jesus as nothing more than like a hippie dude Love, peace, all that stuff. But the love of Jesus, which was his central driving motivation, is a love of truth and justice. It's the love for the law of God. He is the man in Psalm 1 who delights in the law of God. How quickly we gloss over this simple fact that Jesus spoke more of hell and judgment than anyone else in Scripture. It was Jesus who painted the picture of an eternal hell, an unquenchable fire, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Make no mistake, Jesus will be a judge. We're told at the time of Christ's return in Revelation 14, that there will be three angels sent, and these three angels will come to harvest the earth. And these three angels will bring a sickle to bear upon the harvest of the earth, a sickle that Revelation 14 says will cause blood to flow like juice from a wine press. As deep as a horse's bridle. How deep is that? Five feet? 
spread out for 1,600 stadia, just short of 3,000 kilometers. The return of Jesus Christ will bring judgment to bear on evil and wickedness. He has ascended into heaven as ruler and as judge. Sin, evil, and wickedness does not go unnoticed by him. He will bring justice to bear. Now, I think that's um, something we need to remind ourselves, that this planet is not just a pale blue dot in the middle of nothing, floating through unnoticed, but that Jesus, the ascended judge, watches and sees everything. No one ever gets away with anything, period, full stop. Sin demands a reckoning. And that actually seems right and comforting to you whenever you consider some of history's worst villains. You don't want Hitler to get away with killing six million Jews, right? You want judgment and wrath. You want Jesus, who's going to bring judgment to bear. You don't want Stalin getting away with killing 40 million of his own people, or Mao, some 80 million of his own people. You hear of all these massive atrocities, and you're thankful that Jesus is the judge, and he's going to bring his judgment that is just to bear. Maybe on a smaller scale, whenever you see power imbalances without any justice or mercy, You see people who are oppressing others and taking advantage of them and abusing them. You think, well, thank God. Jesus is in heaven. He's not missing anything. He's going to judge it. But apart from the gospel and apart from the cross, if you're honest with yourself, you'll look in the mirror and find yourself in the same crosshairs of God's judgment the wrath that you deserve. And so the coming judgment of God in Jesus, you know, Jesus ascended into heaven, he rules and reigns, he intercedes, he will be your judge when he returns, as promised by the two men. And the thought of that actually brings you dread and terror. Well, it is the ascension that speaks to this deepest existential angst. Let me show you how. In verse 9 of Acts chapter 1, it is the crucified, risen Jesus who ascends to the heavenly throne. Take a moment and let that one really sink in because it's going to change everything. We've been tracking along over these 40 days. We've seen Jesus risen. He's appearing to his disciples. He shows them that he has a body. He's not just a ghost. In so doing, he's assuring them. He's like, guys, it's really me. Look. He says, look at my hands. Look at my side. Look at the holes and the scars. And you see... The Jesus who ascended in verse 9 takes with him in his body the very wounds 
that purchased your pardon and mine. And so when Jesus ascends into heaven in a bodily form, he does so with holes in his hands and in his feet and in his side. That means that he is now seated in heaven as the judge who bears in his body the scars that prove that you have been forgiven. That the judgment for your sins and for mine have been fully paid. The penalty paid in full. If you're a Christian man or woman today, then you are blood-bought. And Jesus ascends into heaven with proof positive in his body that your judgment is not some distant day when he returns. Your judgment happened 2,000 years ago on the cross in his body, and the debt has been paid. That's what the judge is sitting in heaven bearing in his body. In a theological sense, the very wounds that redeemed humanity are now subsumed into the Godhead. This means that Jesus is the judge. He's the judge who has already paid for and pronounced your pardon and mine. Paid in full. And so now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come. He will judge. But judgment on you has already been passed if you're a Christian. You're forgiven. It's all in the ascension. Those are the three things that the ascension of Jesus means. He rules. He reigns. He intercedes. He will judge and set things aright. He's already judged you and you are forgiven. Jesus is ascended, he will return. But I want you to turn to one last place in your Bibles before we close off. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. This will grant you a perspective on the ascension of Jesus from the culmination of all things. An eternal perspective. Jesus Christ is risen and he's ascended. And he is seated at the throne of God. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 5. And there's this critical moment that comes where the beasts and the elders are all gathered around the very throne of God. And there's a scroll, and on that scroll is written every single person's name who has ever been redeemed and saved for all of eternity. And the chorus cries out, Who's worthy to open the scrolls? There's no one worthy to open them. And then every single creature that is gathered around the throne cries out with the answer. Every creature gathered around the throne of Jesus points to the Lamb and says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and glory and honor and strength He's worthy to open the scrolls of the saved. That's the central point of the ascension. Look, I want to take you there for this moment because it's captured my heart this week. I want you to picture the heavenly throne of God. Jesus ascended to the throne with the Father. And in Revelation chapter 5, we are told that 
all of the redeemed are gathered around the throne. Human beings from every tribe and nation and tongue. We're also told that every living creature is gathered around the throne at that same moment. Every humpback whale singing in its beautiful song. Every cardinal flapping its red wings and singing. Every squirrel standing up on its back feet with its arms up in the air, tail twitching, barking, worthy is the lamb. It's Jesus. He's the one. <laughs> That's the whole point of history. To show the worthiness of the lamb to save sinners like you and me. To rule and reign and to sustain us to the end. To intercede for us on behalf of the Father. And to judge everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this important passage in Scripture that reminds us that Jesus, after you were raised to new life, you did not just perpetually walk the earth, but you ascended into heaven. I pray that that would give us comfort and hope this morning as we return to that truth. That as days get darker leading to your return, that we would turn to that truth and live out of that for abiding confidence. We would always have this glorious picture of Revelation 5 at the forefront of our mind. Jesus, you alone are worthy. We pray this in your name. Amen. Mm -hmm.